A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, welcome back to part two of my conversation with Louis Mel Madrona. Thanks so much for listening. This is a topic I'm really fascinated in and I want to learn more about. Maybe I'll start just by sharing a little bit from my background and, and then I definitely want to hear from you. But I remember, I remember my mom telling me that my dad prayed daily and intensely. It was a key part of the success that he achieved and who he was as a person as he saw it. And, you know, we've probably all seen the classic picture of George Washington praying, I think at Valley Forge, you know, that painting, right, Freeburg. Right. And, and then earlier this year, I interviewed, I had another, another podcast guest, Scott Harrison, who founded Charity Water. They're bringing, they brought clean water already to more than 10 million people in the world. And in his book, he talks about I think his words were, I was a flawed founder who prayed constantly for guidance, something like that. It was interesting because I think his background is as a Christian and he was very quick to point out, you know, I'm not trying to convert anybody. I'm not telling people how to live, you know, but I applied it and, and this kind of thing. So I think as a culture, we have some, some familiarity, of course, with this, but it's maybe from a Christian or a Judeo-Christian kind of background. And as I look at it, I see, you know, there's kind of two kinds of prayers as I see it. There's the prayers of gratitude that are, they're not a request in any way. It's just, you know, thank you for this. Thank you for my life, whatever. And then there's the request for assistance, like help me vanquish my foes, you know, help me make more money, whatever. Almost a selfish prayer as I see it. But as I read some of your writing and I thought it was interesting, it's no surprise in writing about healing, you include prayer, but your view of indigenous prayer. And there's almost a formula as I took away. You didn't necessarily present it that way, but but the prayer as you presented it was like a new perspective on prayer for me. So anyway, that was a lot of just background for me talking about prayer. But I really, I want to ask you, like, what's your understanding of prayer? Like how to do it? Why would we want to do it? You know, what can it do? That kind of thing. Where seems like it's a, a useful place to start on this topic? Well, the word in Lakota is... Chekiyayo or Wachekiyayo. And we're in the process of sort of removing Catholic translations of Lakota words into English. Hmm. So Chekiyayo was translated by the Jesuits to mean prayer. But what it really means is having an intimate conversation with your relatives. Interesting. And so in my mind, prayer is having an intimate conversation with the invisibles. Now, is that the, is that the only word that Lakota uses for prayer or are there like shades of prayer, types of prayer that they might have well, other words also for? That's the only word 
of which I'm aware. Okay. So the idea of prayer then is that one has an intimate conversation with non-physical beings. And so in that intimate conversation, we share our struggles, our pains, our needs. And in the way I was taught, we don't make demands. We say, I understand if, if it's not possible for me to have what I need. You know, I, I, I know that I'm just a common man and and I don't have the big picture. I don't understand how the universe works. But, you know, I, I sure would like my car warning light to go off, if you don't mind. Yeah. It helped well, me out. And did we talk about this? We might have talked about this last time, or it might have been in your book. I don't remember. But you talked about an experience from your life about when you were running late to an appointment and your car wouldn't start. Yes. Will you share that? Sure. Yeah, I just talked to the car and, and said a prayer to the car spirits to, <laughs> to get the car going. And it went and it that, started. Yeah. I, and I can imagine, you know, people I know and, and maybe a former version of myself that would think, that's ridiculous, you know, or you think about maybe some of the Christian tradition of worship, no false idols and no gods before me and, you know, this kind of thing. And it, it does seem foreign to to the way many of us are raised. But what do you think about that? Well, I, just, I have my grandfather who always talked to his cars and, and encouraged them to work. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I've just seen it works. I mean, it doesn't always work, though I, I did it did happen to me that all the warning lights in my car went on recently. And I, I said that exact prayer that I talked about earlier in a, a sweat lodge ceremony that I sure would appreciate, you know, if, if it's just a glitch, if you guys could turn off those warning lights. I'd be really <laughs> yeah. And next morning they were off. <laughs> so, no way. That, yeah. yeah, no, no, it happened and they haven't come back on. Yeah. And I have a friend who we were talking about briefly before we started this recording, and he's working with some indigenous folks there in Maine as well. And and he and I talk about, we've been talking about prayer a little bit in our, in our friendly conversations. And he was sharing with me what he's learned and how he's applied it and things like that. And, and one of the things that I said is I've personally been reluctant to pray in my life because I thought, you know, so much of what I pray for if I imagine myself as the listener or the receiver of that prayer, then I go, well, why are you praying to me? Like, just go do something about it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and what he said in response, he said, yeah, you know, some of the elders that I know, they would say, like their counsel would be, if you can solve the problem for which you're praying, don't bother praying, just go solve the problem, <laughs> you know, like handle it. Right. Right. That's that's a really practical perspective. And and the way he framed it when he said, we must be the vehicles for our own prayer. Right. So if you're, I mean, there's there's a famous joke, right? You know this joke about the guy standing on top of the house. Oh, yes. And that's, yeah. And the floods are coming, you know, and he's praying for rescue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you tell it? Because I know the one, the nail, right? He's sliding down the roof. That's how I hear it. Oh, okay. The way that I hear it is, so there's a guy standing on his roof and the floods are coming and a boat comes and he's praying for God to rescue him. And a boat comes by and they invite him to get in. He said, no, no, I'm praying for God to rescue me. And then, <laughs> and then you know, a helicopter comes by and they offer to rescue him. And he says, 
no, no, you know, I'm praying to God to be rescued. And something else happens, and he says the same thing. And finally, the flood rises, and he dies. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he gets to spirit world or wherever he goes, you know, depending on what you believe. And he's like, hey, I was praying. How come you didn't help me? And they said, look, dude, we sent a rowboat. We sent a motorboat. We sent a helicopter. What, what more can you ask <laughs> from us? Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. That's I totally get it. And the, and the version I've heard about the roofer and he's sliding down the roof and on his way down, he knows he's going to plummet to his death. And he's praying to be saved and he gets, he, you know, just as he catapults over the edge and he's caught his suspenders catch on a nail and he says, ah, never mind, God, nail got me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Same, right. same idea. But let me, let me go back to this. Did you say that the Lakota term is, is it Cheeky IO for prayer? Cheeky IO or Wachiki IO. Wachiki you know, it's a verb. 80% of Lakota words are verbs. Interesting. And so you put the pronouns inside the verbs, which makes it really difficult. And they have, of course, they have, you know, there's first person this and third person that, which sometimes changes the inside of the verb instead of the outside. So it's, these are complicated verbs. So chekiyayo is one of the root words, or chekiyaye, and it really does... It's about these intimate conversations with your relatives. And if you're having an in- intimate conversation, you're not going to be like demanding. Yeah. Well, and, and also the way that I understand Lakota, that relative, I mean, if you had said ancestors, that would have kind of resonated and been congruent with what I know of Asian culture. But in what little bit I know of the Lakota way of life, that relative is everything. Everything. Everything is your relative. You know, we say homotakweasin, which means we are all related. Yeah, that's it's such a beautiful perspective. And I thought that was worth distinguishing as well, because I know no translation ever captures the full, you know, beauty or meaning of, of what it's attempting to translate. And along that, on that topic, just before we move off this completely, you mentioned how many of these words that you know, the Catholic church or, or maybe the Western world has, has kind of used to describe some of these activities or traditions in Lakota. One of them is this of sweat lodge, right? And this idea of, is it Inipi? Inipi Kaga, yes, is the Lakota word. And what does that mean? And how close is it to sweat lodge? <laughs> it's not at all sweat lodge. It doesn't even come near it. What does it so mean? The best translation that an elder came up with whom I know is revitalization ceremony. Hmm, that's beautiful. Yeah, because ni is, is, ini is the root word for breath or for like the breath of life. And like wichoni is, is the word for life. So ini has a lot to do with breath of life. And so, so P is the plural third person ending, like they. Mm-hmm. So you say inipi, so they breathe into you. And kaka means ceremony. Hmm. So it's a ceremony where they breathe into you. And the best translation into English would be revitalization ceremony. That's that's beautiful. It's just hearing that term, like a revitalization ceremony, like I want to begin every day with one of those. <laughs> you know, I, I think my morning, like my morning coffee isn't doesn't quite rise to that status. 
You mentioned, and maybe this gives some context to this whole conversation, because honestly, Lewis, more than any interview I've conducted over the last year and a half, this to me feels more like just, I'm just curious. Like, I appreciate you sharing your experience and your knowledge with me. And, and more than any other conversation, this feels like, you know, if anybody's listening, they're just listening in to my curiosity being satisfied. And so in an attempt to maybe to give a little context to this to people who, who have listened in this far, and they might've been going, why are we talking about these single words and this single tradition that most of us never have the privilege of being exposed to in a personal way or whatever? Will you just share a little bit about some of the, I don't know if the right word is legend or prophecy or prediction about how it would be indigenous wisdom that would actually be what heals our world. That was the vision of his crazy horse. And and that's a name, by the way, his crazy horse. That was some, that was somebody's name. <laughs> that was a man. Yes. in in the 19th century, and he had a vision of these gray ribbons and these giant insects with people inside them looking out holes, uh, moving at great speeds to come to the Lakota people to learn what they needed to learn to survive in the world. And he had, in that same vision, he saw giant gray birds with people inside looking out of windows flying to the Lakota people to learn what they needed to know to survive in the world. And, you know, there's, there's groups in South America who have similar prophecies. You know, the, the eagle and the condor. Yeah. And in Maine, there's a prophecy that it's the people of the dawn who will get the teaching that will help the European-derived people to survive. And I think there's something really important here because indigenous people know how to live in harmony with the environment. Right. And yeah. and they really grasp the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Right. And While still it, being very independent, right? I mean, indigenous cultures place a tremendous value on the individual's freedom. Right. On right, but freedom but in but also <clears throat> In a collective sense, in a yeah. sense of, of being obligated altruistically and, and behaviorally to serve the community. Yeah. So freedom comes from service and that it, it's not an all for me and none for you freedom. Right. It's a, let's all collaborate. Right. Make, or, a, or a, I'm going to do what I want to do. F you kind of freedom. It's not right. one of those freedoms either. No, no it's a collective freedom. It's a freedom that's grounded in the understanding that we're all in this together. And there's a belief that people who get sick get sick for the community. And so it's all of our duty when someone gets sick to help them get well. Because wow. if not them, us. Yeah. And and so there's this there's this sense of, you know, we're all in the boat. It's a fragile boat. It could sink. And we got to work together to keep it afloat and keep it moving toward the destination. And I, I think, you know, scientists are telling contemporary Western culture these things and they're not being believed. Right. You know, and I'm speaking to you from France and France has had the hottest summer ever recorded and people died. It was so hot. 
it got over 45 degrees Celsius, which is, you know, getting into Arizona temperatures. That's amazing. Yeah. And even where I am, I'm in the south of France, near Montpellier, and you can feel the drought. You can feel the lack of moisture. Hmm. And I've never, I always come the same time of year here. It's never been so hot and dry. Wow. It's frightening. Yeah. And indigenous people have been speaking about this for a long time. Yeah. Scientists are now speaking about it. And somehow we have to listen. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you. And, and at the same time, I think that it's a very individual duty or opportunity, right? That again, it's not more facts. It's not more data. It's not somebody shouting louder that's going to, I don't, I don't even want to say wake people up or convert people because I'm not huge into either one of those, but for people to listen, you know, inside themselves, let me ask you this question. There was something you said about, yeah, it wasn't a question. It was, it was something that I've recently learned. Interesting, the synchronicities. You know, I just picked up this book by Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. Do you know this oh, book? Right. Yes, I do. It's, it's, I like this book, definitely. Yeah, I'd seen it around, but never picked it up until recently. And now I've been reading five pages a day, every day. It's, a, it's like 600, 700 page book, but learning my own country's history a little better. And there's this entire chapter, like chapter four on our history with the native people here in the United States. And he gets into the specific dates and locations and people, the tribes and this kind of thing. You know, I, of course, we learn about this a little bit in school, but man, I didn't realize some of these treaties and promises that were made to some of the native tribes here that were some in some cases broken within a matter of days right like, holy right. cow that is amazing and and again i don't know that anybody has a responsibility to do anything but man i sure wish more people in our modern day were aware truly aware of that history and then but then what so say we know about it more deeply or whatever does it matter at all well it does matter because it it explains why Indigenous people in the United States are so angry, which might be worth knowing. And it explains the health problems, physical and mental. And also, I, I think that, you know, we all have to come to terms with genocide and with broken promises. You know, they're, they're like abscesses. They, they need to be opened up and drained. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what we do about it, but nothing will improve if we don't talk about it. Yeah. That yeah, seems I, to I be so important. Yeah, to, we've got to begin by talking about it and putting it in the history books and saying, look, this is what happened. Yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't this cute little Thanksgiving dinner. A lot of bad things happened. And here's some of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the uncomfortable realization, and this is maybe as political as, as I like to get, but the fact that, you know, pretty much every one of us is a beneficiary of that suffering. And that's, for me, an uncomfortable truth because then it's like, okay, I have an amazing life and I live on land that, you know, 10,000 years ago, even a few thousand years ago, 100 years ago, didn't belong to anybody per se. There was no deed, there was no title. And now, man, I got my, I got my parcel. <laughs> you know, right. I've got a pretty right. good life. It's like, whoa. Right. It's sobering. I mean, it's, it's daunting, but it needs to be discussed. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking about that with me a little bit. Okay. So let me wrap up this part of the interview just by asking 
So say that people hear this, I mean, because I think there's a way in which you could go just, man, I feel like a pile of crap. If I even, if I even acknowledge this or start to think about its implications, but I think it doesn't need to, right? That there are ways in which we can be empowered, if not by it, to do something about it. What do you think if, if there's some, if this is like striking a chord inside anybody who's listening to this now, what might be one thing they could do that might yield either some healing or some meaning? What, what's your view on that? Well, I think just knowing the history will change how people interact. And it will improve some of the prejudice. It will explain to people some of the problems in indigenous communities, the, the origins, the sources. And just having that much more compassion by knowing what really happened will make a difference. Yeah. I mean, I truly believe that it will. Yeah, so just learning, just learning more fully their history. And then if someone were to take that on, where would you recommend they start? Well, they could start with with that with the book you just mentioned. And then there's a really good history book. Well, there's a really funny writer who tells a good story and in a very entertaining way about all of this. And his name is Thomas King. He's a Cherokee guy who lives in Guelph, Ontario. And he wrote a book called The Inconvenient Indian. And it's full of all this information, but told in a really entertaining way, which is hard, mm. you know, because this is hard stuff. But Thomas King, you know, is such a good writer that he can tell it in a way that it's entertaining. And so I suggest reading that book, The Inconvenient Indian. The subtitle is A Curious Account of Native People in North America. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading about it on Amazon right here. It's very well-reviewed. It, in this book, Thomas King offers a deeply knowing, darkly funny, unabashedly opinionated, and utterly unconventional account of Indian-white relations in North America since initial contact. There you go. Okay. That sounds That's like a, a book I'll pick up. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I really liked it. I love his work. His work is extraordinary. And, you know, he's written a whole slew of books that are really awesome. Right on. Well, thanks for that. Okay. So I want to go ahead and change the conversation a little by moving us into the enlightening lightning round. Okay. All right. So in this section, I'll ask you a series of questions and then my aim is to be quiet. So I might probe a little, but you can answer as long as you want. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Number one please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... I think it's a great adventure. Okay, thank you. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better? French. <laughs> Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Coyote rules. Mm. Okay, number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? I, I think it would probably be Thomas King's book, A Short History of Indians in Canada. Hmm. It's one of the most hilarious collections of short stories that I've ever read. And they're true, I imagine. 
Not all of them. <laughs> okay. No, no. One of them is about flying Indians in Toronto. <laughs> so, Interesting. I don't think that I went to the corner where he reported that Indians fly and bounce into buildings. Uh-huh. I didn't see any. Well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> they don't do it in daylight. No. Oh, maybe that was my problem. <laughs> okay. Number five, you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, I take my laptop so I can keep working on my favorite projects. Hmm. That's very prolific of you. Very practical. <laughs> okay. Number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? You know, I, I was I was a extreme skier, and before that I was a dancer. And all of that accelerated hip arthritis, and I eventually had to have a hip replacement. So I've stopped extreme skiing, and I've stopped extreme running. And now I limit myself to the... Stairmaster elliptical and bicycle for my extreme exercise. And how's that working out for you? It's working well. You know, I, I miss skiing like a madman through the trees, jumping over rocks and giant moguls and, you know, but well, I, I suppose that's aging. You just have to let some things go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew what happened to its indigenous people. I wish everyone knew the real history of what had happened for the reasons we talked about earlier. Yeah. It would change the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Number eight, what's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? to practice radical acceptance of your partner and okay. to learn to appreciate your partner's idiosyncrasies and weirdness. <laughs> how can we do that? It sounds easy, but how, how can we do that as a practical matter? I think when one gets annoyed with one's partner, instead of saying, well, that's annoying, try to find a way to say, well, that's cute. Mm-hmm. And, and find a way in which it really is cute. All right. Thank you for that. So aside from compound interest, what's the most important lesson you've ever learned about money? Or what's something that you're sure to always do or to never do with money? Hmm. I think that, that I'm happiest because I've used money to create experiences. Hmm. And even though I may not have as much money in the bank as many people I know, I have a wonderful, wonderful memories of experiences. And you're in the South of France right now. <laughs> I am. I am indeed. Yeah. Yes. Right on. Okay. Fantastic. So the final question in this section is if people want to learn more from you or connect with you, what would you have them do? I think reading my books is a good step. Going to my website is a good step. You know, we have courses that we do online on a regular basis. And will you give us the address to your website so people can yes. hear it here? Um, there's really two of them. And the courses are mostly on the Coyote Institute, which is 
coyoteinstitute.us. And my personal website is www.mel-madrona.com. And that's M-E-H-L. Right. M-E-H-L hyphen M-A-D-R-O-N-A. Awesome. And Lewis, you've written so much. Where do you recommend people begin? You know, I always would begin in the beginning, which is Coyote Medicine. Mm. It was the first book that I wrote that really talked about me. You know, I'd written some academic books before that. But I would start with Coyote Medicine and then work through the Coyote Trilogy, which is Coyote Healing and then Coyote Wisdom. Right on. Thank you for that. Okay, fantastic. And then I also want to be sure to say this here as an expression of gratitude to you for sharing your time and your knowledge and experience with with me and everyone who's listening. I've gone on Kiva.org and made a $100 microloan to an entrepreneur in, I believe this entrepreneur is in, I'm going to look it up where she is exactly, but her name is Golnoza. She's 20 years old. Oh, she lives in Tajikistan. She's 20 years old. She lives with her parents and grandmother in Tajikistan. And she's going to use this money to buy more fabric supplies to make dresses for different seasons to improve the quality of life for her, her family, and people in her community. So thank you, Louis, for giving me a reason to go make that microloan. Oh, that's pretty cool. I'm really happy that you did that. Yeah, me too. Okay, so in this section, this is dedicated to an exploration of the creative process. It's really, it's really the creative process, but it's also about thought leadership. So maybe I'll ask you, maybe I'll ask you a couple questions about how you think about, you know, the ideas that you're advancing and how you think about getting them out into the world, you know, if you do at all in, and I suppose in a way that might even border on or cross over into marketing, you know, that kind of thing. But let's start with just the, the very act of getting the books done. Because I know there's a lot of people, especially people who listen all the way to this point, that they want to do what you do in the sense that they want to take their ideas, they want to organize them, capture them in writing, have them be clear and helpful to other people, and send them out into the world in the form of a published book. How do you do it? Well, you just, maybe we start there. What is your process for writing a book all the way from how do you choose the subject? Like, how do you know that this is the one I want to invest so many months or even years into? And then how do you go about it once you decide that? Well, it's been a logical progression for me. I started off just wanting to share my story. And then I wanted to talk about some of the amazing healings that I'd seen. And then I was inspired to talk about the stories that elders told as part of these healings. And then I discovered narrative medicine, so I wanted to write about that. And then I wanted to to write more about mental health, so I wrote about narrative psychiatry. And then my wife and I wanted to write about the kind of therapeutic work we do. So we wrote Remapping Your Mind. Well, well, Lewis, may I just interrupt for a moment to just ask, you know, we, we all have things. I think we all have things that we're interested in probably things we're good at, you know, clearly you're skilled in this area of, of learning number one, but also, you know, the subject that you're in and, and, and we all have that, but why, why do you think it's been important to you to write about it and to share it with other people? You know, I, I feel, I've always felt this mission to share the wisdom of the indigenous world with the non-indigenous world. 
And that's really been a life purpose for me. And I've always enjoyed writing. So one of the ways I can do that is by writing. That's Mary Zen Lewis. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> okay, keep, keep going. I interrupted you. Uh, no, no. I mean, and so I write. So what happens if we don't enjoy writing, but we want to be published authors? Then what? Well, that would be boring. <laughs> yeah. Why would you want to be a published author if you don't enjoy writing? That's a good question. I think there's as many different answers to that as there are people. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, I would <laughs> say find something you enjoy and do that. That You're makes sense. A lot more successful at it than trying to do something you don't enjoy. That's probably true. So, okay. So let me let me go back to this. How do you know when you've landed upon a subject that that you want to devote, you know, two hundred pages plus to to you know getting down on paper? How do you how do you choose a topic? I always have about ten topics going, and one of them one of them takes shape. And I've recently been reading a book by a guy named Sawyer about creativity. And apparently this is common, that people have a bunch of projects in various stages of incubation or, or initiation, and one of them just takes off. Is this book Zigzag, The Surprising Path to Greater Creativity by Keith Sawyer? Is that the one? It's probably an earlier book of his. It's a 2006 book. Okay. So I probably need to jump ahead to his latest work. Oh, there's a lot. I see he's written a lot. Group creativity, explaining creativity, mm-hmm. uh, the science. Okay. So anyway, okay. So yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me that we all have kind of this swirl of ideas or even intentions that we want to write about and share with other people. And then how does it that one day, like one becomes the, the one? I don't know. It just happens that it just jumps out and says, here it is. Now you can see you can see how to do this and what you need to do. And that's recently happened to me. You know, I was playing with lots of different ideas and developing lots of different ideas. And, and this idea to do a book on storytelling hypnosis, hmm. um, which I'd been playing with for five years. And suddenly I saw how to do it and what the chapters should be. And now I'm, I'm working on chapter seven. Wow. And Barbara and I are writing together. I might add, but what's that like? What's that process like to work with not only a partner in the creative process and in the writing process, but somebody that you're married to? Do you do you devote divide? Is it a division of labor? Do you work together on a certain portion? Do you work at the same time of day or different day? Like, how does it work? Well, we tend to to bat drafts back and forth, and I'm not very attached to what I write, so if she changes things and takes things out. I don't care. It's fine with me. And we just, you know, it's like playing tennis. You just hit it back and forth until the game's over. <laughs> until you have something that that either you've reached the deadline because you, you got a contract or it just feels like any further work would make it worse. Mm. And done. Or you've well, said what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me ask you that when because I think there's again a lot of people listening that they think oh yeah that that would be wonderful to have a contract and to have an actual deadline you know from a publisher or something like that. When you write a book, do you can do you still put a book proposal together or maybe that, I guess that assumes you ever did, but do each of your books include a book proposal 
and kind of a green light from an author or an agent or an editor or anything like that? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm at a publisher. Yeah, they do. But whether or not I have one doesn't stop me from writing the book. Oh, okay. I don't need a contract to write the book, but mm. I do try and get it published, obviously. That's a goal. Sure. And Tyree Healing took a really long time to find a publisher. People weren't interested in stories about healing, but I finally did. And, you know, the book was completely finished by the time I found a publisher. But other books have, have a couple chapters and, and I've gotten a contract. I haven't tried to get a contract yet for narrative hypnosis because, you know, there, there's a downside to having a contract too because the publisher holds you to what you proposed. Mm. And and I, I feel like I'm still playing with what I want to be in the book, mm. that that I'm not quite sure that I've pinned down all, you know, I have 15 chapters and I'm on chapter seven, but I'm not quite sure that I've pinned it down well enough to set it in concrete. So I'm waiting until I feel really confident about what I've got you know, in terms of the ideas. And and in the meantime, I'm just writing. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm having fun, which is probably the most important thing to me. Yeah, that that's great. That counts for a lot. Tell me, how do you approach a chapter? Do you have a structure in mind? Do you, you know, try to always open with a story or end with a story? Do you tell the reader what you're going to tell them and then summarize it at the end? Is do you, like, do you have a structure for each chapter as you're developing these 15 chapters? You know, I have an outline of what I think I want to say in the, in the chapter. And I try to include a story in each section. And, and I try to end the chapter with a couple case examples, because, you know, if you're writing a, a book about how to work with people, you probably have to tell how you worked with people. You probably have to show how it's done. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm using that basic structure. And, and I'm, I'm trying to ground, probably more than ever, I'm trying to, well, remapping your mind was, I think, grounded in neuroscience. But I'm trying to ground this storytelling hypnosis book in science. So that involves a lot of looking at the literature and, you know, finding citations and putting them into EndNote. And I mean, I find that enjoyable. Not, probably not everyone does, but... So I'm trying to blend like clinical work with, and here's the science behind this and, and why we think it works. Like chapter seven is about, so what is trance anyway? And is it real? Does it exist? And if it does, like, how do you create it? How does someone fall into it? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. This sounds like a book I will like. <laughs> ah, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Tell me, who has been influential in your development as a writer, and what did you learn from them? I think I I love Leslie Silco, Leslie Marmo Silco. Her book, Ceremony, I found deeply moving. And I really enjoy Christopher Moore's writing. Coyote Blue is a, is a book I really like. And there's a book, Sherman Alexie. I love his writing, though I know he's been in a little trouble lately. But Tonto and the Lone Ranger have a fist fight in heaven. Is I just love that book. So and Thomas King, I just I really appreciate what he writes. 
those people probably stand out the most. I mean, in terms of nonfiction, I think Milton Erickson is my hero. Why is that? The stories are just so rich about how he works with people and so creative and inspiring to make me want to try whatever he's writing about. I'm like, I could try that. And I often do. <laughs> so. Wow. So these are all books that he has authored. Right. Not right. just where he's the subject and someone else wrote right, it. Right. My Voice Will Go With You is one of my favorites. Yeah. The, I'm looking at that now. The Teaching Tales of Milton H. Erickson. Right. That's an awesome book. Yeah. Right on. Um, yeah. Those are, those are the main ones that stand out. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. What, what does your writing look like? Do you, do you write every single day? Do you have a word count or a page count or a set amount of time? Like, how do you go about it? And do you have any, what you might call writing rituals? You know, do you light a candle or brew some tea or, you know, anything like that? No rituals. I, I try to write 500 words a day. Hmm. And some days I do more, some days I do less. You know, it, it, One's day job can interfere with writing, and probably many of your listeners can relate to that. Yes. So I have a day job. And your day job is as a physician, is that right? Right. I'm a faculty physician teaching doctors in training. Who sometimes also delivers babies. Right. I do. I do. I, catch, I help them catch babies. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, I find for me that 500 words a day is a realistic goal. and it's a goal that I can usually accomplish. That's great. Well, let, let me ask you this, because in my, in my experience with writing, one of the places that I, I might almost call a trap or I get stuck is where I kind of get stuck in the editing. You know, like I can spew 500 words onto a page in a day, but at some point, if anybody's going to enjoy reading it or un even understand it or benefit from it, it's probably going to have gone through some kind of an editorial process and I realized that if I, I can get stuck in this kind of eddy where rather than another 500 words, another 500 words, I just go back to that 500 words I wrote yesterday and try to make it perfect. Do you ever get caught in that or, or like, how do you approach that? Well, so I just keep trying to add 500 words per day. And some days that means cutting out a thousand words in order and adding 1500. Wow. So it's a net. You're always looking 500. I'm words. always looking to net 500, even if I'm editing. Yeah. What advice or encouragement would you give to someone who's listening, who's either, you know, a first time author, or it's been an intention or an aspiration they've had for a long time, or maybe they're in the process of their first book project and they're not quite sure where to go next or how to get over the finish line. Like, what do you say to that, to those people? So, I think Sawyer is right, Keith Sawyer, that it's a daily plodding along, doing it, even if you're not in the mood, even if you're not inspired, just working, keeping at it. And it's that working every day, keeping at it, that leads to inspiration and not inspiration coming out of the blue, you know, delivered by Zeus on high or wherever it comes from. But I, I think everything that I've read says you just have to set a goal and, and do it every day. And that's the only way to get to the finish line. And I, I think sort of de-romanticizing the process 
of creativity is really helpful because you can be in a really foul mood and, and produce 500 good words. Yeah. No, that reminds me of something I once read about writing that Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, said. He said something to the effect that you know, he made the commitment to produce a given amount of writing every day. And then when he looked back, he could never tell what was written when it was easy and what was written when it was hard. Like there was nothing qualitatively he could discern, but it was all written. <laughs> right. That's it wouldn't the, have been if he just waited. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. What are the, from your perspective, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? I think metaphor is, is really where it's at. And we have to cultivate metaphor. Reading poetry is helpful. Going outside and looking around and writing down everything you see can help. Thinking about synesthesia, thinking about synesthesia, how I can use one sensory modality to describe another sensory modality. And metaphor is so powerful. You know, in, in this workshop that we're teaching, there was someone who couldn't sing in French. She could sing in Russian or she could sing in English. And it turned out that she was holding a secret for her father that no one knew in the family. And and in a sense, her her mother was blackmailing her, you know, to her mother was saying, oh, if X happened, which her mother assumes it didn't, I would kill myself. But it had. And so turns out in French that the word for blackmail is faire sontage, to make someone sing. Hmm. You know, so when we played with that metaphor, this light sort of went off in her head, you know, because of course it's it's in French that she's being black. It's only in French yeah. that blackmail has anything to do with singing. Interesting. It doesn't in English. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Lewis, when you write, how aware are you in the act of writing of the intended audience or the potential reader? Not very. I'm mostly trying to enjoy myself. Interesting. It's more editing that I come back and yeah. wonder who's going to read it. Yeah. What would you say is the worst writing advice that is offered to to writers? To only write when you feel like writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait for the muses, the muse to yeah. show up. Yeah. Throw out the muse. Give it to a goat. Well, I know we're about the end of the time, but is there anything else or what else would you like to say about writing or the creative process that you think might be of service to those who are listening? I've been taking a course at the University of Maine called Creative Concept Development. And I've been discovering so much about creativity that I didn't know. I'm surprised at how useful the information is. And I, I think reading people like Keith Sawyer, and I read the Twyla Tharp book on her process for the course, and I read a guy named Kars who wrote a book called finite and infinite games for the course. And it's just been great because I've started drawing again, which I haven't done for 50 years. Wow. And, yeah. And I'm realizing that I don't have to do it well to be creative. 
Yeah. I can just, that it's okay to just play in modalities that you're not good at. And it bleeds over into the modalities that you're seriously producing works. And I never understood that before, though I, I did some of it unconsciously. But I think doing it more consciously is really exciting. Yeah. No, that's really beautiful. And and in fact, in my experience, the desire to do it well, or maybe even perfectly, can in fact be an impediment to, to, to doing it at all, right? Absolutely. Perfection is the enemy of production. Yeah. Well, Lewis, let's let's end on that note. I think that's that's really beautiful, and and I believe that this part of our conversation. I hope this part of our conversation will be useful to those who are listening and involved in their own creative endeavor. So, again, thank you, thank you so much for for writing what you've written, for making time to share with me and and everybody who's listening. I wish you the best, and and I don't know where or when or how our paths will cross again, but I feel pretty certain they will. Well, maybe you'll come visit your friend in Maine. Yeah, I will at some point. I will for sure. Right. And, and, We're there. And, yeah. And and next time you make your way out to Utah, I hope you'll let me know. I'd love to connect with you here in person. All right. Sounds good. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part two of my conversation with Louis Mel Madrona. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.